a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Hang on just a second. Got to do a quick check. All right. Vital signs are steady. Yep. Glasses freshly cleaned. Laptop fully charged. And it looks like I am just full of hot air. All right. Let's do this thing. Welcome to the show. Whether you are a first-time listener, long-time listener, this is where wrong thinkers gather for courage and camaraderie and just a little bit of encouragement that no matter how crazy the world is around us, we can maintain our grasp on reality and, and even more importantly, can still make a difference no matter where we happen to be standing. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You know, the character trait that's needed most during tough times, at least in my opinion, would have to be the character trait of resilience. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's a state trooper, and and I was really flattered because he says, you know, Brian, you're one of the most resilient people I know of. And I thought, I'm a marshmallow, man. Are you kidding? You know, I, I lament stubbing my toe. I'm, I don't think of myself as resilient. But... His take was, he says, I've seen you knocked down. I've seen you have setbacks before. But he says, you always seem to come out ahead in the end. And, and he says, part of that is because you don't avoid it, because you're, just, you're resilient, you keep to the task and keep going. I thought, that is probably the nicest compliment that anybody has ever paid me. But in the, in the focus of our discussion, it wasn't just him complimenting me. We talked about how important it is to be a resilient individual. And as you look around us, okay, the, the COVID madness, it, it's tough. I don't care how squared away you are. I don't care how confident you feel. It's, it's a thing that will grind on you day after day. I, I've just talked to so many people who've had the fatigue of, oh, I don't know if I can put up with this much longer. But our conversation had to do a lot with kids because my friend and I both have kids. And we talked about our concern for raising kids who will be resilient. Now, I know this is going to sound like one of those, uh, you know, generational stereotypes. Okay, boomer, weird flex, but all right. Um, One of the concerns my buddy expressed, and keep in mind, he deals with people when they're often not at their best, is he said, I worry about the millennial generation because he says, more than anything, I see a lack of resilience that has been trained into them. To where if there's a problem, well, the first thing I ought to do is hold my hand out and, and tell government, bring me milk, bring me cookies. I'll sit here on the curb and cry until you do so. Now, I understand that does not describe every single member of the millennial generation. But if you think about what has been taking place, not just for the millennial generation, but for even generations before that, there's been a very concerted effort to try to teach young people starting at about age five, to adore the state, to view the state as kind of a hybrid parent slash God that is there to solve all their problems in life or there to give them direction whenever there's a fork in the road. Well, I've got a great article here from theorganicprepper.com. This is from Joanna Miller, 
and she talks about the importance of teaching our kids to be resilient. Now, she starts with the question, have you ever considered the importance of teaching children to become resilient? She says, for us as adults, it's easy to get frustrated these days. Whether you're a big picture person looking at the trends in surveillance technology and all the great reset hubris, or an ordinary person frustrated by spiking prices and constant supply headaches. Many of us have had to tap into our inner resources to stand resilient in the face of these challenges. And so this raises the question, how can we teach kids to do the same? And how do we teach our children the vital skill of resilience? Interestingly enough, she starts with helping your children find their tribe. Now, you know, my knee-jerk reaction was, we don't need more tribalism, but listen to what she's describing here. She says, many of us found our friendships and family relationships changed over the past year. She says, I know my children have dealt with the same thing. With remote schooling, they could not see friends in person anymore. And she says, my children found, after talking online, many of their friends held widely different views on what's been happening. For example, she says, my children have had former friends tell them it's the fault of people like us, that would be the vaccine hesitant, that old people are dying. Now, it's worth the effort to help your kids find at least one or two kids with similar interests and values. For instance, she says, my daughter has a Canadian pen pal who's very like-minded. Now, they don't correspond super regularly, but it's enough for my daughter to know she's not alone. She says, my boys know how to practice OPSEC in general. That's operational security. You know, don't don't share all your secrets about how prepared you are with just anybody. But she says, we know a couple of families in town around whom we can speak freely. And then she makes the case for taking care of your own mental health will take care of your children and will help them. She says, if you don't lose it every time the power goes out or the toilet clogs, they probably won't either. She said, we had so many plumbing problems when I first got on septic. I was constantly plunging. There were plenty of tears and frustration at first, but as I got better at managing clogs, it just became more of a regular chore. These days, the kids only tell me about a clog if it's a spectacularly bad one. Most of the time, they get the plunger and deal with it themselves. No drama. Now, the same mentality applies in terms of eating habits. If all of your meals are made just right at very set times, your kids will see you being picky about food and will be less likely to roll with changes. Joanna Miller says, I've written before about spiking commodity prices and how most of us will have to make adjustments in terms of grocery shopping. Again, if you can handle these changes gracefully and be mentally resilient... Your kids probably will, too. I like this next part. She talks about being honest without being alarming. She says, I'm not a big fan of lying. It's saying everything is fine when it isn't. It's important to teach kids about disasters and crises without scaring them. Teenagers in general have pretty good BS detectors. In fact, she says, I need to watch my mouth and avoid complaining too much because I don't want to drag the family down with me. I try to be honest, and so far my kids have handled changes in our routine as well as can be expected. For example, I've been making my own bread for well over a decade. However, I could not find yeast in the store for months. Fortunately, one of my neighbors kept a sourdough starter and was willing to share it with me. We've been mainly eating sourdough ever since. 
My kids aren't crazy about it, but they've seen the shelves at the store. They understand. Next, she talks about getting fit and staying fit. She says, exercise can be a great way to spend quality time with your children and learn about their abilities and skill levels. Bringing along a friend or two can be interesting to observe how all the kids do with different group dynamics. So in Joanna Miller's case, she has three children. And she says, my youngest child's best friend, I'll call him Joseph, is the oldest of three. We invited Joseph on a hike recently. I planned on a hike of approximately three miles at elevation. Now, I know my children can do that because we've done many hikes similar to my planned one. So she says, I asked Joseph's parents what they thought. They were willing to let Joseph give it a shot, but cautioned me he'd never done anything like this before. He tended to get hot and tired quickly, and he may need his inhaler. So Joanna Miller says, I packed plenty of water, snacks, Gatorade, and we agreed that we would stop as soon as Joseph needed to. Well, guess what? Not only did Joseph do the whole three miles, but he also climbed a lot of rocks along the trail and wanted to climb more. In fact, she says, I had to be the one to call it quits, mostly because I wanted to drive home before rush hour. Her point is, Joseph's parents, as well as uh, Joanna Miller, learned a lot, and they had a good discussion afterward. When Joseph saw his friend keeping up with older and taller teenagers, she says, I'm pretty sure it motivated him far more than hiking with his little sisters. And she says, my kids enjoyed the hike because Joseph is a genuinely funny, interesting kid. I believe Joseph gained a lot of confidence. We all won. Next, she talks about wisely choosing your kids' entertainment and how that can help. She says, I'm on the extremely strict end in some ways. My kids have a stupid phone to talk and send photos to people. Uh, There is no Snapchat, TikTok, or Instagram in general. If we want to socialize, we meet people in person. Otherwise, we watch DVDs or read books. One of the beauties surrounding books is that they aren't grid-dependent. People have been passing long winter nights in front of the fire telling stories for millennia. Going back to that won't be the worst thing by a long shot if for some reason the grid breaks down. She says we read a lot of books and find it provides numerous topics for conversation. Got to pump the brakes here because we are fast approaching our commercial break. So let's do this. We'll pay a couple of bills. We'll come back, talk a little bit more about Joanna Miller's article, Teaching Children to Become Resilient. You might learn a few things you can apply in your own life. I know I learned them when I read it. Oh, and it's in the show notes as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Hey, just a quick reminder. If you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find a link to lifesavingfoods.com. If you have been thinking about getting some food storage put away, you know, to be a little more self-reliant, this is a perfect opportunity. Click on it. Take a look at what they have to offer. You don't have to eat the elephant all in one bite. You can start small, but uh, I think you'll find some very useful tools. And your purchase through lifesavingfoods.com helps to support this program and keep me on the air. So you'll not only be doing yourself a solid, but you'd be doing me a great favor as well. Again, check the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I love how Joanna Miller is focusing on books 
in her advice about how to teach children to become resilient because she says the right books can give children a great deal of perspective. She says, for example, my teenage daughter complained a lot about me not treating her like an adult and letting her listen to adult conversations. So she says, I let her read Yonmi Park's autobiography in order to live. Now, it's a very well-written, very adult book in many ways, because it's the true story of a 13-year-old girl escaping North Korea. She says, my daughter burned through it in two days because she kept wanting to know what would happen next. Now, it's a relatively recent book, and you can actually watch Yonmi Park giving interviews on YouTube to put a face to the woman in the story. And she says her daughter learned a lot about what some people do to survive. Now, the point here is that good books can give children ideas about what to do with their time. 30 years ago, children didn't need an electrical grid and the World Wide Web to stay entertained. In fact, Joanna Miller says, I played some computer games when I was younger, but there was a lot more street hockey and exploring outdoors. Reading books about how children lived before can give your children ideas and help them create their own grid-independent entertainment. So when most of us think of childhood and adolescence now, we think of school, sports, music, and fun trips. As a parent, Joanna Miller says, that's what I hear most other parents discussing. And I believe there's value in those activities. But we saw last year how quickly those things could disappear. And she says, I would have been devastated if the marching band had stopped for me as a high schooler the way activities stopped for high schoolers last year. Part of the reason for this is nothing matches the feeling of being a needed team member. There's always work to be done. What projects you do together will depend significantly on the ages and abilities of your children, as well as your living situation. Having the kids involved in gardening is an option for many people. Some fortunate folks, like like Joanna Miller, have a variety of farm projects to keep everyone busy. However, even if you live in a high-rise, your younger children can still help prepare food. Older children can help with meal plans and shop. And if you've had severe grocery shortages in your area, bringing your children to the store with you so you can see what's available and plan accordingly will be very instructive. Try to function as a team, particularly if you have teenagers. And it's also important to find meaningful projects to work on together. Now, I thought this was an important part of the whole concept of resilience because she says it's also important to let your children fail and to let them see you fail. Joanna Miller says, I find it highly unlikely that things will go back to normal. Between vaccine passports, supply chain problems, international tensions, and the absolute destruction of our currency, I don't see a way out of the mess we're in without some pain. And it would be naive in the extreme to think that we can buy all the right gear, stock up on ammo, and come out of the zombie apocalypse unscathed. By exposing your kids to small, manageable failures and frustrations, they will be more prepared for more significant problems that may arise. Now, Joanna Miller says, I've had a significant fall from grace in my life. I was once a suburban wife and mom, primarily suitable for office work and child raising. Then, she says, I found myself alone with my kids in a semi-rural area in a poorly maintained old cabin living on a fraction of the income I thought I would have at my disposal. Yes, she says, I learned a lot over the years and we now have a comfortable, productive home. But it was a rocky road. Big changes are always painful. No amount of gear will change that. But your mindset will. Your ability to fail and still get up to face the next day will. 
And your children can either be a liability or an asset. Small children, she says, are a ton of work. There's just no way around it. But if you have middle and high school age children, they can be your biggest allies if adequately prepared. She says, my kids are my biggest support network these days because we're used to working together. In our downtime, we talk. I try to help them understand as much as they can. Now, she talks about a guy named Selko who lived through the uh, ethnic cleansing and all the unrest in the Balkans about 25 years ago or so. And she says, Selko talks circles, talks about survival circles in this article that she has linked. And she says, you can gain access to the webinar on the same topic with another link that she provides. But ideally, she says, your children should be in the smallest of your small circles. By helping them become more capable and resilient, it will make your little circle more able to withstand whatever life throws at it. So how do you teach your kids to be more resilient? Well, is it something you work on or do you try to protect them from the harsher aspects of life? She'd like to get some feedback from people as to how they do it. She says, if you're teaching children to be resilient and strong, what methods are you using? Do you have any success stories to share? And then she invites you to talk about it in the comments. I don't know about you, but uh, I've learned a lot about resilience in the last year and a half or so. And I thought I was pretty squared away, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like, oh, yeah, it hasn't phased me at all. I've not had a single sleepless night, nor have I woke up with a you know, horrible lead ball in the pit of my stomach thinking about uh, some of the possibilities and thinking, how can I possibly meet these demands? A lot of stuff has been changing. I'm not exaggerating when I say it sometimes feels like the ground is shifting right under my feet. For me personally, I think the thing that has made the biggest difference in my life is the concept of purpose. There's not a single day that I don't roll out of bed with a sense of, I have something to do. And I hope that doesn't sound self-aggrandizing, because what I have to do is not about, I'm building a monument to myself, and you know soon everybody will see how great and powerful I am. It's more along the lines of, God has placed me, at this time and this place, with a particular skill set and a particular love of, for instance, liberty that, uh, that I want to help perpetuate. Not just for myself, but also for my kids, for my grandkids, and for anybody else who cherishes these same things. So when I get up every day, I'm looking for, actively seeking ways that I can advance that in some form. And sometimes it's I, I need to learn more about a particular topic. Sometimes it comes down to, you know, I, I want to share a particular column or an idea or a story that helps illustrate things that matter. I don't know what it is for you, but I'm quite confident that if you were to really set about trying to find your unique purpose or some way in which you uniquely can influence the world, you'll find it. And when you do, Here's the great thing. It's not like, oh, great, now I've got more responsibility and more burdens, <sighs> probably a higher tax bracket now. No, 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 we're, we're not talking about it in that way. It's more like you start to understand that in the grand scheme of things, each one of us has something to do that is ours alone. A lot of people go through the motions in life, but that doesn't have to be you and me. Once you start to grasp that there is something that is, is your mission, everything in life takes on more depth 
more meaning. You become more appreciative. And just speaking for myself personally, it has uh, deepened my understanding of how God can be found in the littlest details of our lives in ways that I never would have expected. So, having said that, I highly recommend this approach. All right, time to move to some other topics. I've got some great stuff ahead of us. You can, of course, find the article I've been citing in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for August 4th, 2021. Joanna Miller from The Organic Prepper on How to Raise Resilient Children. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's move ahead. I've got some great stuff to cover. I like to think that it's it's a good thing to have clarity about whatever it is you stand for. You probably heard me say, I think I'd rather be known for what I stand for than simply what or who I'm against. A lot of enemy-driven thinking out there today, a lot of anger, and uh, in my opinion, we don't need to be adding to the anger. We can make We can do a lot of good. Without, uh, without making the situation even more heated than it already is. So I saw this terrific article from Jeff Thomas. This was published on Lou Rockwell earlier today, Defining Liberty. And I think, man, if we're going to have clarity about what we stand for, this may be one of the things worth paying attention to. Now, Jeff Thomas blogs at International Man, and he says, Here we have a most interesting collection of signage. Some low-level civil servant who's in charge of deciding what the motorist may do at this particular junction has become become quite thorough in creating restrictions. The motorist may not proceed, may not turn left or right, and most interestingly, in the second sign from the bottom in his picture, may not reverse out. In other words, you're stuck here and whatever you do to get out, you're in violation of the rules we've placed upon you. Now, of course, if we were to encounter this particular intersection, we might say, that's absurd. They can't possibly hold me to this. But, Jeff Thomas says, interestingly, under the traffic laws, a policeman can cite us for violating the signage. Now, if we're lucky, he might agree that it's absurd and give us a break. But his job is to enforce it, regardless of its absurdity. And if he enjoys his position of authority, as many in his position do, he may just choose to demonstrate his power. And if we defy him... Well, we're in real trouble. So how many laws exist in the U.S. today? The answer is no one knows. It's just too complex to define. There are roughly 20,000 laws regarding gun control alone, and that's just the federal laws. State, county, and city laws also exist in abundance. The level of governmental dominance now exists to a degree that literally everyone is a criminal, whether they know it or not. It's been estimated that the average American commits about three felonies per day, in addition to many lesser crimes. And there is a great book, by the way, by Harvey Silvergate called Three Felonies a Day. Very eye-opening, and, uh, you know, it'll take the smugness right out of your sails if you, well, I'm a law-abiding citizen. No, you're not. You just don't know which laws you're breaking. And frankly, if uh, someone in government, particularly at the federal level, takes an interest in you, sets their sights on you, 
they can find something to hang on you. Back to the article. It's been estimated that the average American commits three felonies a day, so that means if for any reason the authorities wish to victimize you, they'd find their task quite simple. But Jeff Thomas says, but there's a general assumption among those who simply accept the laws that are heaped upon their shoulders. And that is that these laws are somehow necessary. The legislators only pass laws if they have no other choice. Now, he says, in my estimation, this view is diametrically opposite to what is true. One of my own principles regarding governance is it is the primary business of any government to grow its power and wealth at the expense of its people. And he says this is an important principle to understand as it opens the mind to recognize that governments always move in a direction of increased control. Given enough time, governments will always create a state of despotism. And historically, no government has ever reversed its level of control and introduced greater liberty. It then follows that each country is in the process of becoming increasingly tyrannical. The only difference between them is the degree of tyranny that's been achieved so far. Liberty and governmental control are polar opposites. Yet most people have a rather vague perception of the term liberty and might even find it difficult to define. And that's unfortunate as it means that when liberty is lost, those same people will be unlikely to recognize the fact. So here are two good working definitions of liberty, courtesy of the dictionary. The power or scope to act as one pleases. Here's another one. The state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life, behavior, or political views. Now, Jeff Thomas says the first definition is interesting as it suggests that liberty means each person doing exactly as he pleases. But Doug Casey offers a similarly simple but more refined rule of life, do as thou wilt, but be prepared to accept the consequences. Now, the latter dictionary definition is probably in keeping with the perception of most Americans around 1800. But today's Americans would caution that ideally that would be true, but without our current laws and regulations, there'd be chaos. Libertarians would disagree and offer only two principles that they believe would largely negate the need for laws. Do all that you say you'll do and don't initiate aggression against another person or his property. And again, non-libertarian thinkers would shake their heads and assert that this would result in chaos. Americans have become indoctrinated to believe this through slow measures. As Thomas Jefferson said, even under the best forms of government, those entrusted with power have in time and by slow operations perverted it into tyranny. So the key to governmental domination is that we tend to tolerate the loss of liberty if it's taken away from us slowly. Jeff Thomas says in the U.S., liberty has been in decline by his reckoning for nearly a hundred years. But it's been in rapid decline since 2000. Of course, all countries at some point, in all countries at some point, the governmental domination becomes so intolerable that the people rise up. Revolution follows, a period of great upheaval and hardship, and eventually a recovery begins and the process starts over. So it stands to reason the best place to be is in a country that has already recovered and is in the reconstruction phase, a time when liberty is at its greatest. The U.S. was in this stage in the 19th century, a period of great expansion and development. However, by the mid-20th century, the rot had set in. America was past its peak 
and ready to begin the final most rapid period of decline. At that time, the Russian Ayn Rand, living in the U.S., stated, we are fast approaching the stage of the ultimate inversion. The stage where the government is free to do anything it pleases while the citizens may act only by permission, which is the stage of the darkest periods of human history, the stage of rule by brute force. Now, at the time Ms. Rand made this statement, she was largely dismissed. After all, Americans had never seen riot squads dressed in black and heavily armed barging into homes without a warrant. Authorities did not have the legal right to confiscate all the possessions of an individual based on suspicion alone. Yet this is exactly what Ms. Rand warned against when she said the stage of total dominance is fast approaching. So in reflection, we can have a laugh at the signage that he shows as it was clearly created by a low-level civil servant who was careless with his own puffed-up authority to the point of creating an absurdity. But, in the larger picture, the signs are equally in place. Liberty in the U.S. at this point is all but extinguished. And greater restrictions are being written every day. So what does that mean to you and me? Well, we're left with a choice. We can either accept the signs that tell us we're not allowed to go left, right, forward, or back, wait until government instructs us as to what we're allowed to do, or we may say, that's it. I'm reversing out of here and finding a location where liberty is still in abundance. Now, I don't know where that location may be, but I think this is probably sound advice. And if you look at what just happened yesterday, so the eviction moratorium, which effectively limits a property owner's control over his or her property as a landlord. Someone who hasn't been paying their uh, rent for an extended period of time, legally, that uh, eviction moratorium put penalties on any landlord who would try to evict a tenant. I mean, the, the incentive to just, well, fine, I'll give up, I'll stop paying, I'll trash the place. Essentially, it's, it's put that property in the hands of the renters. And the Supreme Court very clearly told the Biden administration, you cannot go any further with this. But yesterday, somehow the Biden administration, out of thin air, conjured up, well, we're going to extend it once again. And it's, it's under the CDC, which has no congressional authority to make law regarding private property rights. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound alarmist, but I want to be a realist here, too. So let's let's just say what needs to be said right now at the federal level there are many aspects of our government that are operating without limit they refuse to be checked they refuse to be limited to their defined duties and so i ask you to consider you know what obligation do you have to obey them if they're not upholding their end of the contract are we bound to uphold ours I know what my answer would be, but uh, I'm going to leave it up to you to determine what yours would be. All right, once again, we're coming up on the break here. Let us take a very quick time out. When we come back, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the 10 habits of logical people. You know, people who are determined to remain tethered to reality. Because right now it seems like a lot of people are fleeing from it about as fast as their little legs will carry them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Patriot Home Mortgage. In particular, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Located at 619 South Bluff Street, MLS ID 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Why do I tell you about these folks? Well, first of all, there are a lot of folks moving to the Intermountain West, and that means a lot of folks are moving to Utah. And if you are moving anywhere within the Beehive State, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you get the loan you need from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages in a very timely fashion. Why is that important? Well, because this is the hottest real estate market most any of us can remember. Homes don't stay on the market very long. They are snapped up and gone quickly. So you've got to have your financing squared away. And the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to make it happen and make it happen quickly. I would take it as a great personal favor if you would contact them if uh, you are looking for a home and looking for financing to purchase that home. These are the ones that I would recommend to you. Well, let's uh, take a little dive into uh, becoming a logical person. I mean, if you're serious about being able to distinguish between what's sound and unsound, Logic is a pretty handy tool. And I found a great article from a couple of years ago from Daniel Lattier. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education on the 10 Habits of Logical People. This is pretty good stuff. He says, becoming a logical person is not just a matter of memorizing and applying formulas or being able to tell the difference between a valid or invalid syllogism. Instead, it involves cultivating intellectual habits and skills, though they may seem simple and obvious, that are only achieved after years of struggle and education. In his book, Being Logical, A Guide to Good Thinking, venerable philosophy professor D.Q. McInerney lays out the ten following habits that people must cultivate if they're to think clearly and effectively. These are pretty simple ones, too. I was actually kind of encouraged. I felt like, hey, I could do this. So, here they are. Number one, they're attentive. Many mistakes in reasoning are explained by the fact that we're not paying sufficient attention to the situation in which we find ourselves. According to McInerney, the logical person has thus trained himself to always pay attention to the details, even in situations that are familiar, lest he make a careless judgment. I guess another way to say this is read the fine print. There's a difference between people who read the fine print and those who don't. Yeah, 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 I'll just click. I agree. <laughs> and, and away I go with my user agreement. Number two, they get the facts straight. If a given fact is actually an existing thing to which we have access, then the surest way to establish its factualness is to put ourselves in its presence. We then have direct evidence of it. If we cannot establish factualness by direct evidence, we must rigorously test the authenticity and reliability of whatever indirect evidence we appeal to so that on the basis of that evidence, we can confidently establish the factualness of the thing. Number three, they ensure that their ideas are clear. Our ideas are clear, our ideas rather, are the means by which our minds understand the objective world. So the point here is that clear ideas faithfully reflect that world, whereas unclear ideas give us a distorted view of the world. The logical person is constantly testing his ideas to make sure they accurately depict their objects. Number four, they're mindful of the origins of ideas. The logical person knows which of his ideas are based on things that actually exist in the world. 
He knows, for instance, that his idea of cat corresponds to things in the objective world known as cats. As a counterexample, there are a lot of people who have an idea that there existed a female pope named Joan in the ninth century. But if they spent time looking into the source of that idea, they would find that it's widely regarded by respectable historians to have originated in legend. Number five, they match ideas to facts. McInerney writes, To prevent my idea from being a product of pure subjectivism, in which case it could not be communicated to others, I must continuously touch base with those many facts in the objective world from which the idea was born. This is easy to do with ideas that have a simple correspondence to things in the world outside our minds. In other words, my idea of cat refers to an actual cat. But it's much harder to do, as we've all experienced, with more complex ideas like capitalism or socialism or conservatism and liberalism. For these ideas to remain sound, they must constantly be linked to and supported by facts that are accessible to all. Number six, they match ideas to words. We can only communicate our ideas to others if we use words that accurately convey those ideas. But finding the right words can be difficult. And when difficulty arises, we should go back to the sources. How do we ensure that our words are adequate to the ideas they seek to convey? Well, the process is essentially the same as the one we follow when confirming the clarity and soundness of our ideas. We must go back to the sources of the ideas. Often we cannot come up with the right word for an idea because we don't have a firm grasp on the idea itself. Usually when we clarify the idea by checking it against its source in the objective word, in the objective world, rather, the right word will come to us. Number seven of the ten habits of logical people, they communicate effectively. Logic is ultimately about determining whether statements are true or false. If others are to accurately determine a statement's truth, it needs to be communicated to them in a clear manner. McInerney offers the following guidelines for clear communications. Don't assume your audience understands your meaning if you don't make it explicit. Speak in complete sentences. Don't treat evaluative statements, like, that work of art is ugly, as if they were statements of objective fact. Avoid double negatives. And gear your language to your audience. Now, number eight is kind of on a similar tone, and that is, they avoid vague and ambiguous language. Vague and ambiguous both come from Latin words that mean wandering. Vague and ambiguous language tends to wander around ideas rather than having a fixed, definite meaning. So a logical person uses precise language so that his listener knows exactly what he's talking about and can adequately evaluate the truth of his claims. If he refers to more complex terms such as freedom or equality, he makes sure to establish his particular understanding of those terms. Number nine, they avoid evasive language. The problem with evasive language, language that does not state directly what a speaker or writer has in mind, is twofold. First, and obviously, it can deceive an audience. Second, and more subtly, it can have a deleterious effect on the people who use it, distorting their sense of reality. The user shapes language, but the language shapes the user as well. And if we consistently use language that serves to distort reality we can eventually come to believe our own twisted rhetoric. Does that not describe almost every politician, almost every press conference you could possibly tune into coming out of Washington, D.C.? Yeah. When they can sit there and so openly gaslight us with a straight face, as if what? What? How could you possibly doubt this? All right, number 10. 
They seek to arrive at the truth of things. The purpose of logic, according to McInerney, is to arrive at the truth of things. He explains there are two basic forms of truth. There's ontological truth, what actually exists and has real being, and logical truth, the truth of statements. Ultimately, he reminds us what determines the truth or falsity of a statement is what actually exists in the real world. Logical truth, in other words, is founded upon ontological truth. And the authentically logical person, therefore, keeps his logic rooted in truth and never lets it devolve into mere verbal trickery. I can think of a good example of that kind of verbal trickery. And as, when I moved back to Idaho recently, um, there was an old newspaper uh, publisher who I've been familiar with. Uh, this, this is the guy who actually helped me launch my talk radio career. And it was because there, his, his, uh, his staff, and in particular his editorial board, was so malicious in the way that they portrayed anybody who was on the political right, this was during the Clinton administration, that uh, it, it was just sickening. And they had an attorney who was really good at this, this verbal trickery. Case in point, um, there was a, a militia meeting that took place, very open public meeting, and this, this attorney wrote, while none of the adherents openly displayed swastikas, at least two of the attendees had small German flags emblazoned on the sleeve of their sweater. Now, to him, that was proof that, see, they're Nazis. They're just, they're just, you know, they're extremists. The truth of the matter is he was talking about a couple of people who were wearing German Army surplus sweaters. And I don't know if you've ever looked at Army surplus, but this is pretty high-quality merchandise. It will last for many, many years, and it's really inexpensive. So, no allegiance to Adolf Hitler there, just a... Just a really good buy on a quality piece of clothing that could keep you warm during cold weather. That's the kind of trickery I'm talking about. And that's the kind of thing I actually have very little palate for. So, I'll have a link to this article, The Ten Habits of Logical People by Daniel Lattier. It'll be in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You're looking at the notes for August 4th, 2021. And please consider subscribing to the podcast and sending a little shout out to my sponsors to let them know their message reached you. This is the Brian Hyde show.